very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, please make yourself at home. And to listen to tonight's full interview that you don't want to miss, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll get your luck in immediately. I'll be able to listen to hundreds of hours of truth. And the same for Sanitas Radio, where you can upgrade your life every week. I guarantee it. And if you wish to get in touch with me, offer some feedback, want to be a guest on this radio program, or offer a suggestion or have questions, send your request via the contact link, especially with tonight's interview. And tonight we offer a very, very non-traditional interview. A few weeks ago, some of you have been recommending that I interview tonight's guest, who lives literally in the trenches in Ukraine, in that conflict zone that could become the epicenter or the tripwire for World War III. So why not speak to somebody who's actually there on the ground somebody from the United States who happens to be frustrated with what he sees here and wanted to go and fight over there. This guest may have had a checkered past. He has been in prison a number of years for drug dealing. But let's not focus on that tonight. Let's focus on what he has to say from the ground. I have to warn you, the interview became a little bit heated at times in a friendly and respectful manner. It became also a debate between communism and capitalism. Even though I don't like to get involved with opinions during any interview, I like to remain neutral and become a journalist and stay out of the way. In matters of opinion, I go with the flow, but in matters of principle, I stand like a rock. Even though I respect people's opinions, I have to stand up for what I believe in sometimes. And this was an exception of an interview. And you'll see why I say what I say. Tonight's guest is Russell Texas Bentley, directly from Donbass, Ukraine. Enjoy. Hello, Russell. Welcome to Veritas. What part of Ukraine are you in? Well, actually, we call it the Donetsk People's Republic. It is the area known as Donbass, the Don, uh, Don River Basin. It is southeastern Ukraine uh, since the U.S.-backed coup d'etat in Kiev two years ago. Uh, This part of Ukraine has refused to be under genuine Nazi rule. Uh, We have fought the Ukrainian army to a standstill, and uh, we have our own territory now. It's called the Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, There's also the Lugansk People's Republic, and uh, we have our own government, our own army, and our own police here now. Russell, why are we interviewing you tonight? Why are you in Ukraine, first of all? Well, I have always been interested in politics. And when I saw what was happening in Kiev, the so-called Maidan protests, I realized that uh, it was just another phony U.S.-backed so-called revolution, but truly a coup d'etat. And uh, after seeing what happened in Libya, Iraq, Iran, Syria, uh, Yugoslavia. I just uh, finally had 
had enough of it and I decided I was going to do something about what the United States, the crimes the United States government was committing around the world. And so I came here, I joined the army, I fought Nazis for six months. Now I'm an information war warrior and do uh, humanitarian aid work here in Donetsk, Donetsk People's Republic. Let's uh, give the audience a bit of a perspective of who you are. Who's Russell Bentley? Where do you come from? Give us a bit of your background. Well, uh, I was born in 1960 in Austin, Texas. I grew up mostly in Texas, served in the U.S. Army. I've lived in uh, Washington State, Minnesota, Illinois, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, spent a couple of years in Germany overseas when I was in the U.S. Army. And um, I've just uh, been here in uh, Donetsk for a little over a year now. It's really a great place, uh, really nice people, beautiful country, uh, very, very fertile uh, land here. You can you can eat lunch walking down the street, you know, um, all kinds of fruit trees, uh, chestnut trees everywhere. It's a beautiful place. At what point in the United States you had a, an encounter with law enforcement and with the, with the judicial system? What happened? Oh, uh, back in the 1990s, I uh, was a marijuana smuggler. I was bringing weed from Mexico up to Minneapolis and Seattle, Kansas City. In 96, uh, I got uh, busted for a conspiracy. They didn't catch me with anything. They just uh, arrested me um, on the word of a couple of snitches for a deal that I had done four years before. Uh, they didn't have one one seed or one dollar from that deal, but you know how the U.S. judicial system is. It's, you know, you can... You can indict a ham sandwich. <clears throat> so I ended up uh, uh, serving uh, five, five years in prison for, for marijuana. So now, when did you move to Ukraine? Uh, I got to uh, uh, Donetsk in uh, uh, 7th of December, 2014. 2014. So this is after the coup d'etat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was um, during the time when there was still very, very heavy fighting. The uh, Ukrainian army still held the Donetsk airport. Um, that was my first combat position was at the airport uh, in January 2015. We took the new terminal back from the Ukrainian uh, so-called cyborg uh, special operations soldiers. Uh, the ones we didn't kill ran away, and um, we hold the airport uh, today. You mentioned a few countries and the behavior that we and the Brits have, have uh, displayed all the way back to Iran, as you said, 1953 mm -hmm. Mossadegh. Then we have in the early 90s with Yugoslavia. Then we keep going on and on. Afghanistan, Iraq, Georgia with our puppet Shakashvili there. Mm -hmm. That's the first time where I noticed that the West was really demonizing Vladimir Putin. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong there, but uh, with the... Uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, wasn't mm -hmm. the, the U.S. and the Israelis uh, and the Georgians, of course, who perpetrated this, and uh, the Russians came in defense of the the ethnic Russians in that part of the world? Precisely, exactly. The uh, the Georgians, with U.S. and Israeli backing, uh, you know, did provocations. Uh, they are attacking civilians in Ossetia, and uh, the Russians just basically came to the defense of the civilians there. I mean, really... So much in the uh, Western media today, just, I mean, the way to understand what's really going on is just take whatever you see on CNN or Fox News and, and uh, turn it 180 degrees. and Flip it. Yep. That's pretty much how you figure out what's true. Because, I mean, these guys are not just liars like, you know, of five degrees or 10 degrees to the right or left. I mean, they, what they say is really the opposite of the truth. Then came Libya, and we got rid of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, even though he made uh, that country prosper and flourish. This is not it something that... Highest, yeah, Libya had the highest uh, standard of living in all of Africa under uh, Gaddafi. The uh, education, medical, was completely free. Housing was free. Uh, gasoline was 14 cents a gallon. Um, you know, when, when, when Libyans got married under Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan government gave them a wedding present that was the Libyan currency equal of 50,000 U.S. dollars. And a lot of Americans 
you know, they have absolutely no idea what the truth about Muammar Gaddafi was. Um, you know, they say, oh, he dresses funny and gives long speeches at the UN. They don't understand that he was really one of the greatest leaders uh, of the 20th century. And it really, uh, it really uh, made me mad when he was murdered on the orders of uh, the U.S. government and when uh, that hag Hillary Clinton uh, made jokes about it, uh, it really sickened me. And then when I saw what was going on here, I said, that's enough. I'm going to do something about it myself. I highly encourage anybody who has doubts to read the Green Book, and then you'll get exactly what we're discussing here tonight. So now we have Ukraine. Vladimir Putin facing the United States, the West, the European Union, and so on. Tell us what is really happening here historically. We can go back all the way to Nikita Khrushchev. I believe at one point he gave back Crimea as a sign of, of, of good faith to Ukraine. Get, take us back in history if you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, in the 50s, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, Crimea was a part of the country of Russia, uh, although it is connected uh, – It's a peninsula that's connected to uh, the mainland mass being uh, Ukraine. And so Khrushchev, just with a stroke of the pen, uh, gave all of Crimea to Ukraine. At that time, it was the Soviet Union, so it was just more of a formality. Um, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, Crimea remained under uh, Ukraine, and there's a major uh, Russian naval base there. So... The Russians made a deal, <clears throat> excuse me, with Ukraine, and they paid him like a hundred million a year uh, for the lease of the naval base there. Uh, at the time of the uh, Maidan coup, there were twenty uh, uh, thousand Russian soldiers stationed in, on the Crimean Peninsula uh, under the uh, uh, conditions of this treaty, and so it was there was no Russian invasion. The, the Russian uh, soldiers were already there. Uh, with the permission of the Ukrainian government. Contrary When, to what uh, the media portrayed here. Right, right, exactly. Again, the opposite of what what uh, what they say is really the truth. The, the Russian soldiers were already there um, when the uh, people of Crimea uh, decided to have a referendum, a vote, to see whether they wanted to stay with Ukraine or go to Russia. Uh, the only confrontation was that the Russian military went to the Ukrainian military bases there and said, uh, these people are going to have this referendum, this election, and Ukrainian military will not be allowed to interfere in any way. Um, it's interesting, the, uh, the referendum was uh, overwhelmingly over 90% uh, in favor of uh, going back to Russia. And uh, after that, then the Russian military told the Ukrainian military, okay, this is now Russian territory again. Uh, you guys can leave if you want. Um, and uh, over 75% of the Ukrainian military did not leave. They joined the Russian army. So, I mean, you can see, you know, that, that the people of Crimea, even the Ukrainian soldiers that were there. Were those Ukrainian soldiers, were, were they ethnic Ukrainians or ethnic Russians? Um, well, they were probably uh, mostly from uh, from the Crimea area, you know, I mean, basically in the Ukrainian army, you have guys uh, that, that serve in the districts where they're from. So probably most of them were like ethnically Russian, but serving in the Ukrainian army. Uh, interesting, interesting. And again, the reason why this, this plebiscite uh, happened was because once the breakup of the Soviet Union, well, you, the majority of the people in Crimea are ethnic Russians, aren't they? Yes. So when this occurred, it was just naturally that, that they would just want to go back to, to the motherland. Now, well, I mean, when, when because of the uh, Maidan coup, the U.S. engineered, U.S. backed, U.S. paid for coup d'etat that happened in Kiev, uh, when, you know, American stooges, uh, oligarchs, kleptocrats, uh, true psychopaths, uh, genuine Heil Hitler Nazis, were put in power in Kiev, you know, the people in Crimea had the opportunity to decide whether or not they were going to live under, you know, Nazi rule. And I'm talking about genuine 
Nazis that say Heil Hitler and like that. They they really do. And the people in Crimea just had the choice to uh, say no. We don't we don't live under under Nazis here. Go go back to 2004, I believe it was uh, when the was it the Orange Revolution, the the Vic, mm -hmm. Victor Yushchenko, yeah, uh, who's also a complete uh, total criminal. Well, before before him, Victor Yushchenko wasn't he poisoned? Um. Yeah, but I'm not. I mean, I I remember that guy, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what the story is on that. Okay, so this is before your time, before it caught your attention. So Timoshenko, you were saying. Let's talk about Victoria Newland. Let's talk about uh, what's the former Ukrainian president, the the lady. What's her name? Uh, Timoshenko. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about these guys is that. Uh, I need you to get closer to your microphone. Oh, okay, sorry, hold on. These guys, uh, they—they're not—they—they—they they work for the United States. I mean, Victoria Newland, uh, whose real name is Noodleman, um, she's married to like this super arch conservative neocon uh, that was a project for the American Century guy. I mean, these guys are are trying to take over the world. That's that's really what this whole conflict is about it's the west trying to 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 break up russia i mean well, you got to understand that now the u.s has a puppet government right on the border on the russian border you know it's like as if uh russia had a coup and overthrew the government of canada or mexico and, and yeah and put in uh you know um their guys in the government there you know So it's, uh, it is, like you said, it could very well be the tripwire for World War III. Um, there's a lot of concern. There are a minority of uh, Turkish Tatars in Crimea. Uh, now that Turkey is uh, uh, aligned with Ukraine, apparently they have a, uh, a new uh, mutual defense pact. Um, you know, what Turkey's doing in Syria is, you know, it's truly insane and very, very dangerous. Um, and if, you know, they could start, you know, uh, doing um, guerrilla warfare in the Crimean Peninsula with their uh, ta Tatars there. So, I mean, there's a, it's a pretty, pretty dangerous situation. You'll look at what happened uh, just a few hours ago in uh, Turkey. In that stoplight with 29 people dead, I'm hearing reports, I'm not sure if this is authenticated, that the U.S. Embassy in uh, in uh, Turkey has been hit too. I'm not sure this is correct. I'm, I'm just passing it along, but I haven't authenticated it yet. So Turkey seems to be in the forefront of all of this. They were caught buying or getting oil from quote-unquote ISIS. And we know, mm -hmm. we know over here what ISIS is all about. What is the perspective over there in Ukraine about ISIS? Well... <clears throat> I can tell you that the people in the Donetsk People's Republic, where I am, um, they, you know, they totally understand what's going on in Syria, that it's, you know, these provocations, uh, Turkey shooting down the uh, Russian Air Force jet, uh, stuff like that. I mean, it's like a little chihuahua dog, you know, uh, biting at the ankles of a grizzly bear, you right. know, and literally, um, literally. and. You know, these guys uh, in Turkey, they think that, you know, because they're in NATO, that they can do anything they want. But, of course, the NATO treaty, uh, the other countries, if Turkey uh, instigates a war itself uh, and, and makes offensive attacks, then the other NATO countries are not obligated to join in. And so probably uh, what people here expect will be that there'll be some kind of a false flag provocation. Uh, where the Turkish will say, you know, maybe something like this bomb at the stoplight or something. They'll say, oh, yeah, it was Russian spies that did it. So, oh, you, you know, know what? Syrian we're, army or something. We're recording this probably days before we air the interview. But I can see exactly when it airs, it's probably going to be the case. I was thinking, okay, who are they going to point the finger at? And I think it's going to be Russia or the Kurds. Well, I mean, and and of course... It's it's so obvious. It's I mean these guys, uh, these criminals from the West, uh, 
who uh, false flags are, you know, one of their major pages in their playbook. They do so many of them. And unfortunately, the people in the West are now so uh, willfully ignorant that uh, these criminals, they do a false flag. And I mean, they don't even care if there's evidence. You know, you take, uh, for example, MH17, the bullet holes in the wings and in the uh, fuselage of the cockpit. Um, you know, you take uh, World Trade Center building number seven. You know, people people can look at that. And if they don't see what's before their own eyes, it's because they don't want to. And so many people in the West now, unfortunately, don't want to. They don't want to know what's the truth. They just want to think about you know, the football game or fixing their car or chasing girls or drinking beer. And uh, we live in very serious times, Mel, and the people that uh, are willfully ignorant um, are going to deserve everything that they get. Indeed, indeed. Now, let's go back to 2013, because it seems to me that this is almost a talk of war between Russia grabbing Ukraine or the European Union and the United States grabbing Ukraine. November 2013, Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych rejected a trade agreement with the European Union instead of choosing to maintain closer ties with Russia. Is this the beginning of what we're seeing today? I believe so. I mean, it was at that point when uh, Newland and uh, her masters in the West, uh, you know, that was their opportunity to, you know, the... Uh, you know, the spark that lit the powder keg, so to speak. And I mean, and Ukraine has always been uh, deeply ethnically divided in in the West, uh, over, West. In the West of Ukraine, over 75 percent of the people speak Ukrainian. Uh, in the east of Ukraine, over 75 percent of the people speak Russian. And it's basically like and you, I mean, you can look at a map and see how they voted uh um, for uh, Yanukovych, and you know, basically, there's you know, Ukraine is is two separate peoples uh, in in one country, and uh, particularly in my area, the Donbass, Donetsk area, uh, it's actually a very international area. Uh, the city of Donetsk was uh, <clears throat> um, became a, became a city from a village when a Welsh man named John Hughes came here in the 1700s uh, to uh, start a coal mining business. And he sent out uh, advertisements all around the world saying, hey, if you want to make a decent living, come to Donetsk and work uh, for my coal company. And like uh, people from like 120 different countries came here to work in the coal mine. So it's always been, this part of Ukraine has always been like especially ethnically diverse. There's no nationalists or skinheads or or racists here at all and i mean that and so over here you know we we believe uh, everybody to be equal uh in the west under the uh, right sector the nazis they think that you know russians are untermenschen that they can be killed or enslaved like livestock and uh we're just not going to have any of that. They, the ones that come here and try and kill us or make us slaves, they die here. Now, how did you get to join the army, the battalion of Vostok? How mm -hmm. did you get to do that? Well, I'd, I'd uh, done some research on the internet uh, before I came here. Uh, I had one friend that was a journalist uh, that was working here um, when I got here. And uh, we spent like all day trying to go around the, the address that I had. Uh, for uh, the recruitment center uh, was no longer the recruitment center. They sent me to another place. We went there and then those guys sent me to a third place. And uh, that was the right place. But I spent a week uh, going there every morning and they'd say, all right, uh, you know, the officer will be here to pick you up uh, early in the morning. And then it would be lunchtime. And they'd say, oh, he's coming right after lunch. And then it would be dinner time. And then they would say, well, he's not coming today, but be here early in the morning. And I did that for a week. And then finally, uh, I went to uh, the Vostok Battalion headquarters, uh, me and a couple other international volunteers. Uh, we went in and talked to a commander. And 15 minutes later, we were ready to join up. What is the essence of time? Is that part of the battalion name? 
Uh, yes, it's actually it's a subgroup. It's uh, the Essence of Time uh, is a Russian uh, political movement in Russian. It's called Sut Vremeni. Uh, it's a communist organization. Um, they believe uh, that the Soviet Union should be brought back, that uh, communism should be brought back, but that we should learn from the mistakes of the past and make it better. As they say, it's the USSR 2.0. Um, they believe in a, you know, a bipolar or multipolar world. Um, they don't want, uh, you know, just one country or one block uh, in the West to rule the whole world. They believe there needs to be a balance. And so they're a great organization. Uh, from the very beginning of the war here, they've been doing humanitarian aid, information work, and they have a very highly decorated combat unit here. Uh, at that time, it was part of... Um, Battalion Vostok. That's when I joined. I served with them for six months. And then uh, the Sud Vremeni unit uh, was transferred to the Han Battalion, which is um, it is the most elite unit in the Nova Russian Army. It is Spetsnaz. Uh, we do a lot of work uh, behind Ukrainian lines. Um, uh, and it's, I mean, it's the Sud Vremeni is one of the high, highest regarded uh, units, military units in the Nova Russian Army, and I'm very, very proud to uh, to be a member of it. <clears throat> and we we just, we do our work uh, every day. We have uh, humanitarian information and military units here. Now you mentioned something that I want to dissect more. You want uh, USSR 2.0, but I go back in time and I think of the Marxist Russians, Trotsky, Lenin and all the other leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution. Not a lot of people know that the amount of death during World War II, and especially in Ukraine, and you know that, millions mm -hmm. and millions of people were starved to death. An estimated uh, five and a half to six and a half million deaths between 1931 and 1933, quoted by multiple sources. Usually we hear, and again, folks, if anybody's going to continue throwing stones at me for saying, stating facts, when we hear of 6 million Jews being killed, and that hasn't even been confirmed, but let's not go there. But what happened in, in the USSR, we're talking about millions and millions and millions. It, it dwarfs what happened in Germany. Are you saying you want to go back to that? Yeah, I mean, and certainly we can talk about it. I mean, one of the things, one of the main misconceptions that a lot of Americans have you know, as they think about World War II and they say, oh, you know, uh, America went over there and saved Europe from Hitler. Uh, in fact, and this is a fact, 85% of all of the combat that the Nazi army saw in the Second World War, 85% was against Russians. And in fact, it was the Russians that defeated the Nazis. Uh, it's like uh, if, if 10 guys go out to dinner and then one guy picks up the tab, and then the other nine guys split the tip. That's what Russia did in uh, the Second World War. They picked up the tab, and uh, they lost uh, between 20 and 25 million people uh, in a war of extermination. The Germans came into Russia with the intentions of killing everybody here uh, that they didn't make into a slave. And... The Russians, it's the, the historic mission of the Russian people has been to prevent any one country from ruling the world. And they did it with Genghis Khan. They did it with Napoleon. Uh, they did it with Hitler. And they'll do it with uh, NATO and the West, too, if they have to. And I'd like to say, too, that if, if it does come down to World War III between Russia and China and probably India... Uh, against the West. Um, you think in India would be will, joining Russia and China? Uh, perhaps. But certainly Russia and China definitely have a defense pact oh, now. Yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, so if, and if the West attacks Russia uh, and has to fight Russia and China, um, uh, the West will be destroyed. I mean, even though the Russians have one-tenth the military budget of the United States, they have better equipment and they have better uh, better soldiers. And I can tell you, I can guarantee you that if if it comes to a war between the U.S. and Russia, 
Um, <clears throat> the U.S. military will be destroyed and the American people uh, will suffer uh, beyond uh, their imaginations. One thing I can never understand, if Russia, if China, if the United States have nuclear weapons, why do we need conventional warfare if we have mutually assured destruction? Well, you know, it's interesting during the uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the USSR um, proposed mutual disarmament of nuclear arms for all countries uh, many times. I mean, you can go to the uh, United Nations. It was uh, um, proposed in the UN. I'm, and I'm talking about like a couple of dozen times over the years. They said, hey. Let's everybody get rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, that was their proposal. The United States uh, declined every time. But let's go back to, to just so that people continue having a perspective of what you're saying of USSR 2.0. During the Russian Revolution, which is 1917, and then three years, the Civil War, mm -hmm. the Bolshevik Party under Vladimir Lenin and Trotsky and the rest of them, the evidence shows that the Bolshevik Revolution was a Jewish revolution, and they murdered 66 million Christians in Russia. Do you subscribe to what happened there? <clears throat> well, I'm not sure exactly um, what you mean by what happened. You know, I mean, the... Well, it didn't last that long. It was, a, what, 70, 73 years, wasn't it? The, the life of the Soviet Union didn't even last a lifetime of... Uh, of today's average human being? Well, I mean, uh, the Soviet Union was actually a, a pact between countries and all the countries still, you know, I mean, it's like a treaty, you know, all those countries still exist. And, you know, perhaps one day they'll, they'll sign another treaty together, you know? I mean, uh, Germany and the U.S. are allies now, but in less than the life of a human being ago, they were uh, arch enemies. But I'll say about the, about the revolution and about the civil war is that, okay, so that was a, a feudal country uh, under a monarchy uh, coming uh, on the losing end of a world war. Uh, they had a revolution and then a civil war. Uh, a lot of people also don't know that uh, the United States and the West uh, invaded Russia after the First World War. The United States had uh, 50,000 soldiers in Russia uh, during the Civil War, and they were helping the, uh, the White Guard, the uh, monarchist side, and they were defeated. Um, but of course, I mean, this was, uh, this was a terrible time for Russia. I mean, the people that say, oh, yeah, that Stalin uh, intentionally starved, uh, you know, 10 million people or something, that's all bullshit. That's uh, from uh, Winston Churchill, who uh, is not exactly a uh, objective observer, and he made up the story. There's no exact uh, known number of how many people uh, died in the famines during the Civil War and, and stuff like that. But I, I do not subscribe to the idea that uh, Stalin intentionally uh, starved anybody. I don't. I don't believe that. I mean, and I'm not like a big, big uh, fan of Stalin or anything like that either. I'm just saying, you know, I haven't. It's like you were saying about the six million Jews in Germany. I just haven't seen any uh, reliable evidence. I mean, I know there was a lot of people that died during the war, during the revolution, and during the civil war. I mean, of course there were, but. Uh, I don't think it was intentional uh, genocide or ethnic. How come history books don't put the right label? Why don't they call it a Jewish revolution? Because that's exactly what it was, Russell. Well, I'm not sure, you know, and it's, it's funny, you know, I mean, I have a lot of Jewish friends, and I mean, I'm certainly not prejudiced uh, against anybody based on their, And so do I. Their, their uh, race or religion. But uh, I'm, I am certainly against uh, Zionists. I think the nation of Israel is uh, probably the only country in the world that is more criminal than the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, I would like to see, 
I would like to see the Zionists uh, removed from power. I mean, of course, it's uh, and I'm not saying the what the significance of it is, but uh, you know, Victoria Noodleman, uh, also known as Victoria Newland, uh, she's Jewish. Um, Poroshenko, Yatsenyuk, uh, a lot of the uh, stooges that the U.S. has put into power in Kiev are also Jewish, you know, and I mean, I don't know what the significance of that is, you know, most... Don't, don't forget Yulia Timoshenko. Yeah, of course, and uh, I mean, so it's funny to see an almost all Jewish government in a country that's almost all Russian Orthodox. Well, look at the United States, and again, folks, why do I have to remind people that I have plenty of friends who are Jewish, and this has nothing to do with me being anti-Semitic because I am not. I'm just, I just want to know why certain information is not disclosed. And I'm willing to bet it's because the media is owned by a high majority of Jewish people, and it doesn't put good light on them. And I understand why they're doing it, and banking, and publishing, and so on. And when you look at the United States, 9% of the Senate is Jewish compared to 1.7% of the population. And 5% of the 114th Congress is Jewish. So they're obviously overrepresented. And I'm willing to bet that whether you're a senator or a member of the House or you're running for president, unless you have the blessings of the Jewish community and the state of Israel, you have absolutely no chance of winning. So when you say, let's take him out of power, you're actually referring to the majority of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, whether Jewish or not. And don't even get me started on politicians with dual citizenship. And it makes me wonder if it, this is the United States of Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny. The, the book that was... Uh, published around the world back in the early 1900s called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've read that book. And, of course, I've read the history behind it where they say, oh, it was the czarist police that actually wrote it to uh, inflame anti-Semitism or something. And I don't know who wrote that book. But I do know this. Everything in that book which is a plan to of how to uh, shatter societies and in order to uh, make them uh, be able to be controlled by other people. Uh, everything in that book has happened. You know, all the stuff that they said to, that we need to do this, this and this to in order to enslave the world, basically, all that stuff's happening right now, all of it. So I don't know who wrote that book, but uh, there's somebody that's that's taking a, a lesson from that book and putting it to use right now. Well, I don't know if this is the real person, the products of the other society, the author, Matvey Golovinsky. But mm. when I look at the United States, I think of the right, the neocons, the Zionist supremacists. And then when you have on the, on the left, you have the Marxist supremacists. Now, let me ask you this. Communism, what does communism mean to you? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that. And I'll tell you, I used to call myself a socialist. And then in uh, 1995, I went to Cuba for a month. And uh, I have always been a fan of uh, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. Um, I've read a lot uh, over the years about the Cuban Revolution. And I decided to go there and see for myself what it was like. And that was in 95 when the Cuban economy was uh, in very hard shape from the collapse of the Soviet Union, the loss of their major uh, international trade partner. And so I went there for a month. I went with uh, a group called uh, Pastors for Peace uh, that goes every year to um, protest against the blockade and to bring humanitarian aid. Uh, and that was a two-week tour with those guys. Um, but I knew that everything that we saw on that tour was going to be like, uh, you know, kind of choreographed and, you know, uh, showing us the very best of everything. And so I stayed for another two weeks and just rented a car and just drove around the whole island by myself, you know, stopped in at a gas station, stopped in and talked to like to some guys cutting sugar cane in the field, something like that. Uh, 
you know, the old lady in the square. And I talked to people and uh, I got my own perspective. One of the people I talked to was a, uh, a captain in the uh, Cuban army. And I said, uh, I'm a socialist. And she said, I'm a communist. And I said, well, what's the difference? And she said, uh, well, a communist is someone that's willing to fight for socialism. And I said, ah, well, then I'm a communist too. And for me, what communism means is that no one can be too poor because no one can be too rich. You know, Mel, in the United States, uh, the 400 richest people in the United States own more than the poorest 50% of the population in the United States. You know that, right? Of course I do. And I have to agree with the extremes, the one-tenth of one percent. And let's not even talk about the Rothschilds who probably own trillions of dollars and they're not listed anywhere. I don't like the extremes. I, I, I would like to see more of a middle ground for everybody. At the same time, I have to tell you, and I, I don't like to give my opinions when I'm interviewing people because I have to remain neutral as a journalist mm -hmm. to stay out of the way. But the reason why I'm here speaking with you today is because my parents left Cuba after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. No, I understand that. I, I read that on your biography. And some of my fellow Cubans were murdered by Che Guevara. And when I see, and these were good people, family people, who, but because they had a different political point of view, they were murdered in cold blood in front of their families. Mm -hmm. Even some of my French families, they were leaving their house and they said, oh, so you're leaving. One of them, they burned their house down. So I have a problem with Che Guevara. And when I hear so many people who are minorities who say, oh, that's my hero, they really don't know the history. Did you know that he was a racist? And he, this is a quote, he said, the black is indolent and a dreamer, spending his meager wage on frivolity or drink. Now, do these sound like the words of a left-wing hero to you? Um, well, actually, I mean... Uh Che Guevara went to Congo and tried to help them uh, liberate the Congo. So, I mean, he, 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 he risked his life to help black people. So, you know, I mean, you know, whatever the quote is, I mean, uh, certainly that applies to some of them as it applies to some of all of us. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, his work speaks for itself. You know, he was an internationalist. He wanted to Uh, liberate the entire world, uh, make the world a better place for everybody. And, you know, the, the forces that he was fighting against, I mean, uh, you talk about racism, uh, just look in the United States today, look at the quality of life of black people, look how they get guns down every day. And not, I mean, although, of course, more white people get killed by cops in the United States than black people, but uh, still, I mean, black people have, have it rough to this day. I mean, certainly it's a systematic racism in the United States. And look, I understand the point where people say, oh, equality is so good. And by the way, I'm probably, from my family and my friends who are Cuban, I'm probably the only one who has said for decades, not years, decades, that we deal with Vietnam. We lost 56,000, 57,000 of our soldiers there, and we deal with them. It's a communist country. We gave them most favorite nation status. We deal with China. And mm. why not with Cuba, 90 miles away? And of course, everybody around me hates me for saying that. At the same time, why is it that so many people on a daily basis are trying to risk their lives coming to the United States? We don't see people from the United States going there. They're coming here. And I have to say, yes, they have equality. It's equal misery for everyone. I'm sorry to say this, but that is true. And I, yes, I've been to Cuba several times. And believe mm -hmm. me, when I get there and I see those girls walking the Malecon and 15 years old, and I ask them, why are you a prostitute? And they tell me, well, somebody has to support my family. Everybody here has the same salary, which is of today is $584. I'm sorry, Cuban pesos per month is $22 per month. And it went up from 471 pesos to 534. So 
from 2013 to 2016 that went from $20 to $22 per month. Whether you're a doctor or a trash collector, it doesn't matter. So where's the motivation? When you call a hotel in Cuba, there's no customer service because they know they'll keep that job. Anyway, I don't mean to digress. Mm -hmm. It's just that I have, I have a, a problem with extremes, whether it's communism or fascism. There should be a formula in the middle that could provide a landscape for honorable and fair competition and well-being for every member of society. I agree with you on that, Mel. I certainly do. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to find here. I mean, uh, Sud Vrimini, I mean, one of, one of the uh, foundations of their philosophy is to learn from the past and to keep learning uh, you know, to, to, to find a new way, you know, I mean, certainly there were, um, plenty of mistakes made, uh, in the former Soviet Union and under communism. And there's, there's a better way to do it than they did it last time. And that's what we're looking for here. But at the same time, you look at capitalism, you look at the gross inequality, uh, in the world today. Um, you know, people, I mean, how can someone fulfill their potential as a human being, if they don't have enough food to eat, if they don't have a place to sleep, you know, how can they become a, an Einstein or a Beethoven if they're worried about uh, their next meal? I agree with you there. You're not have, getting an argument from me there. Because when I see the way in which we're going and we're eroding the middle class here, which used to be what was the foundation of this country, and they seem mm -hmm. to be now falling, falling, falling all the time. And when I see that 60% of our budget goes into military, and as you said, 10% is Russia, we can actually combine the nine countries, including Russia, China, and the next of, of all of them, and we still surpass them. And I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist, I'm a libertarian. When I hear that our students have to pay so much every single year. They raise their tuition. And the reason for that is, is because, I'm going to go back and say it, the Federal Reserve, they print the money out of thin air, they lend the money to the United States, which then collateralizes by its signature. So if universities are saying, oh, we can get all this money for our students, they can get whatever loans they need, we're going to raise our tuition every single year. And guess what? When those students finish their whatever they're going to school for, underwater basket weaving, I make that joke all the time, mm -hmm. they have a mortgage. They have a mortgage without having to, ha having to buy a house. How can you get married? And a lot of these people cannot even get a job, and whatever they went to school for is not relevant or applicable anymore. Because sure. the jobs that are important today, that are in demand today, may not be in demand four or five years down the road. So I think the government should get involved and if I were in charge, and I'm not a communist, as I'm saying, I would grab a bit of the military and look at those jobs that are important for the United States, those jobs that will be in demand in the United States in the future. That could be a great incentive for people to go out there and study for that trade. And I would pay 100% for all those people that want to take those jobs. I'll take you to school because at the end of the day, those are going to be prepared citizens who are going to pay taxes. And the more money you make, the more taxes you'll pay. So those three, four, or five years in education that the government will be investing or allocating to those students would translate into a career, 25, 30, 35 years in the workforce of people paying taxes. So you'll make that up eventually. When you provide those tools, that education for that student, that student becomes a productive member of society. It becomes less dependent and more self-sufficient. And if you multiply that on a societal level, that's how you see the middle class rise again with a strong foundation and not these student loans that are given to anybody for any reason, for any trade that may not be even in demand. Again, if the government is concerned about getting their share of taxes, that is the perfect scenario. Put the students through school, they'll be able to get a job, and they'll be able to pay those taxes instead of the other way around. 
supporting unemployed people eternally? Well, that should be the way it is, although a lot of rich people and a lot of corporations don't pay any taxes at all. That is true, too. Absolutely. Those loopholes, need, <laughs> they need to go as well. I'm going to look at Walmart. How many, mm-hmm. how many tax havens do they have throughout the Caribbean, Europe, and so on? Yeah. We know, Mel, I mean, my basic philosophy is that no one can earn a billion dollars. I mean, the last job I had in the United States, I was a lumberjack. Uh, I made about $50,000 a year. And uh, it was very, very hard, very, very dangerous work. Uh, it took a great deal of skill to do it correctly. Um, I did it for maybe 15 years. I, you know, um, I'm not bragging to say that I was an expert in that job. Uh, and I made $50,000 a year. And that was a, a pretty comfortable living. Um, and so if, if a guy that's an expert at a hard and dangerous job makes $50,000 a year, how does the guy that makes a billion dollars, which is a thousand million dollars, how does he how does he work that much harder or be that much smarter than me uh, that he can do, you know, 2000 times uh, as much? You know, and so it's, you know, to me, I can say that no one can earn a billion dollars. Uh, they only take uh, the money that should have gone to their employees that earned it. Um, and so. If no one can earn a billion dollars, then that means every billionaire on this planet is a thief and they have a bank account full of somebody else's money. Well, take a look at our teachers. I think a teacher Mm -hmm. and teachers, to me, they're the ones who are creating the foundation of this nation. And when those teachers don't even have the necessary supplies and they have to get from their own misly salary in order to complement whatever articles and supplies are needed. That to me is pathetic. And schools that are growing mold and mushrooms on the walls in certain schools in the United States, when we can build, I live in Tucson. Mm -hmm. I have many friends who work for the defense industry and I go to their social gatherings and sometimes I ask them, you know, so what do you do? Oh, I, I was one of the people who created the Patriot missile and this and that. And this one that we're creating now, it's, you know, over a million dollars each. Mm-hmm. Imagine that the B-2 bomber, $2 billion, we could put 200,000 students every year in college with one B-2 bomber. Now the F-35. Mm-hmm. But again, you mentioned the billion dollars that not being fair. I come from nothing. My parents left Cuba. They had a nice life there and they had to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Five children. My brother is the CEO of one of the largest airlines in the world. I happen to have been, you know, in some people's eyes, successful. And I have Mm -hmm. a hard time when people come to me and say, you shouldn't have this or she shouldn't have that because they have no idea where I came from. I fought very, very hard. I worked very hard to have what I have. I didn't steal from anybody. I went to school at night and worked during the day. All my friends were in fraternities. Come on, join us. No, I didn't. I had to work very hard for what I have. And I have a hard time when people ask me to share even more than I share right now. So what do you say about somebody who came from nothing and legally was able to make it? Well, I mean, um, and if even if you're a millionaire, Mel, I got no problem with that. A million dollars, $10 million, I got no problem with that. A hundred million dollars, I don't really see how somebody can earn that much. A thousand million dollars, I got a problem with it. Nobody, nobody can earn that much money. Uh, even if it's legal, it doesn't, it doesn't make it moral. And simply, you know, and, and here's the other thing too. If somebody wants to be a billionaire, maybe I won't have a problem with it after every kid on this planet has a home and food and education and medical care. But we're a long way from that. And the reason that we are, it's not a question of not enough resources. It's that 400 people in the United States own more than 150 million people. And, you know, I got no problem saying that, that, they, that they stole that money and that somebody should take it away from them and give it to the people that need it. I mean, and I understand about hard work. Um, 
I can guarantee you that uh, uh, John Rockefeller uh, did not uh, go to school at night and work hard during the day. He had other people that worked hard during the day, and he took uh, he took the the profit that they made. You know, I mean, so a millionaire, I got no problem with. A billionaire, I got a problem with because nobody can work that hard. I see your point. I see your point. And as I'm as I told you, I'm broadcasting from Mexico right now, and here you probably have heard the name Carlos Slim. I mean, of course. Okay. $73 billion. And guess what? People in Mexico, they feel very proud about this individual. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that he was not successful. At the same time, I lived in Mexico during the NAFTA signing. And I, at, mm -hmm. at that time, I was training U.S. businessmen coming down here. Now I, I know better. Hindsight is 2020. And when mm -hmm. I look back at that, I... I I think it was a mistake for the United States to do that. But when I see that he owned Telmex, a monopoly, mm -hmm. and people here pay so much more in telephone bills than we pay in the United States, no wonder he's making billions and billions with all the other companies that he owns. So in that regard, I'm with you. Now, there are other people. Take, for example, uh, pick one, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. It's supply and demand. That company went public. X number of people, whether they're fools or not, they decided to buy X amount of stock in their in their IPO, and now mm -hmm. he's worth billions of dollars. Now, do you think that's that's right or wrong? Well, I think. Um, I mean, first of all, um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I don't really like Facebook all that much. <laughs> it's uh, you know they they basically are, um, you know, it's a way of monitoring, you know, people all over the world. It's, it's, uh, to me, it's a big uh, surveillance apparatus. It's data mining, um, like Google, like YouTube, yeah, like exactly. the rest of them. Data mining. But um, as far as like Zuckerberg goes, I mean, sure, he was, uh, <clears throat> he had a great idea. Um, it was, uh, he was lucky. But here's the thing, man. No one should control a billion dollars or multi-billion dollars. When you have that much money, uh, it's no longer just money. It is, it is political power. And I mean, and you start when, when you have a billion dollars and then you look at some guy that makes $50,000 a year and you say, oh, I can, I can buy and sell you before breakfast every day. You start thinking that you're different from other people, that you're better than other people. And that's that's a big problem. I mean, whenever you know, it's if it's racism, if it's uh, you know, like fascism, where they say, oh, you know, the, these guys are untermenschen and we're the master race. Whenever you start having people that think that they're special and other people are livestock, then you got a problem. And I, I mean, I don't think that anyone uh, can earn or should control a billion dollars. Well, you touched on a very good point because I think that when people go to the election booth every four years here in the United States, they think they're really electing somebody, but that somebody's probably anointed. Anointed by whom? Well, we live in a corporatocracy. I've come mm -hmm. to that conclusion. When you have, as you said, we have billion billionaires everywhere, and you have companies that are beyond the law. They commit mm -hmm. crimes. And all you need to do is file bankruptcy or dissolve the company and transfer the assets somewhere else. There are many tricks on how to do that. Sure. And you have the politicians in the United States whose religion is one, one religion only. It's called re-election. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, that's saying, you know, we have the best politicians that money can buy. And that's one thing that I've been attacked in the past couple of years because I discussed Vladimir Putin. Some people say, well, Mel, but he was KGB. So what? So was George Herbert Walker Bush, who was the CIA director. At the same time, when I compare how Vladimir Putin and the people feel about him, correct me if I'm wrong, but what is his approval rating in Russia? It's uh, above 80%. Above 80%. Can we say that about yes. any of our precedents? I think uh, just a few precedents. Uh, Harry Truman... In June 1945, had 87%. Uh, John Kennedy, April 61, had 
I'm surprised to see George W. Bush with 90%, but that was after September 11th. But it's just for a period of time, and I think Putin has kept this above 80% rating for quite some time. But anybody, anybody here in the United States, has they ever come close to that? I doubt it. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members or subscribe, or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. And down to Gonky Park Listening to the wind of change An August summer night Soldiers passing by Listening to the wind of change Like brown 